All right, well, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to James chapter 4, if you will. James chapter 4. We got a great text today. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 13 and looking to verse 17. James writes, Come now, you say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All shall boasting, all such boasting, excuse me, is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is one of my favorite portions of the book of James. Because most scholars believe, and I agree with them, that James was one of the earliest or the oldest of the New Testament books that were written. And within it, James was writing to those who were dispersed amongst the Gentile nations who were first Jewish and then became Christians. They're known as the Diaspora. He indicates this by the 12 tribes that are scattered in verse 1 of chapter 1. The Jewish individuals, apart and distant from the land of Israel, from Jerusalem, James was still there in Jerusalem at the time that he wrote this. And as he wrote this, overseeing the church there in Jerusalem, he reminded them of a fact that will change your life if you adopt it today. And that is, God has a will for you. God has a will for you. Now, there has been a lot of debate in the Christian community over the last 10 years concerning the will of God. And the debate goes as such. Is there a specific will for an individual believer in Jesus Christ, or is it just generally outlined, that is, a general will that is found within the context of Scripture? And the answer to that debate, I believe, is yes, both are true. There is a general will outlined for each and every believer in Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. But I also hold to the position that there is a specific will designed just for you individually to fulfill. It is the purpose of the new life in which God has given you. The new life that He has given you in Christ is not meant to be spent on yourself. It is meant for the glorification of our God. To use it to glorify Him with everything that you do, say, and think. In the fulfillment of God's will for your life, you will find yourself exactly where you should be in your relationship with God. As one person has said that it is the safest, most secure place for a Christian to be, and that is to be in the center of God's will. There's further debate concerning the will of God that goes as again as such that there is a perfect will that he has for you and also a permissive will that he has for you. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But James reminds his reader of a of his readers of a fact that we need to embrace this morning. 
That as Christians who are saved in Christ, our life is no longer our own. To spend and to use for our personal pleasures and desires. For we have been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that purchase, we have relinquished ourselves to Him, to be used for His glory, to be subject to His authority, to be led by Him personally. As James begins here, if you look with me to verse 13, he says, come now, or as we would say today, come on, man, listen to what I got to say. I love people who laugh at my jokes. Can I just tell you? It's so rare. Listen to what I'm about to say. You who say that today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. He is addressing them and those individuals who believe that their life is their own, who believe that they are the sovereign over their individual life who find themselves in Christ Jesus. James is reminding them now that that isn't true. In fact, that such boasting, he declares arrogance before God. He calls it evil. And he also says that to those who know to do good and don't do it, to them it is sin. We must understand that James is now directing us to understand that our life after becoming a Christian is no longer our own. And he gives us two reasons why. The first reason is found in verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, isn't that the truth. I don't know if I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Let's be honest, they can't even get the weather right, can they? And yet, we have no clue what is going to happen tomorrow. I remember sitting in the theater in Chicago watching Phantom of the Opera at the end of 2019 with my family. I think it was the Cadillac Theater that we had gone to. It was a dynamic production. It was wonderful to see. No one could have ever imagined that in March of 2020, our whole world would be turned upside down by the notion of a pandemic that spread across the world. The idea of a pandemic wasn't even in our thinking. We could have never predicted it. We could have never known the impact of it. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in our finite position as as individuals. We have no idea what is going to transpire tomorrow, but God does. God does know. There's never a surprise to God. As Isaiah tells us, he knows the beginning from the end. He sees everything at one time. He sees the beginning, the middle, and the end of the entire existence of his creation at one time. God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So to think that we have the wisdom necessary within ourselves to even fathom what may happen tomorrow, we are simply kidding ourselves. 
But then he not only talk, he, he proceeds by reminding us of our limited view of the future, but then also reminds us of our temporal existence here on this earth. For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? You know, at best we can expect how many years of life here on this earth? My dad, who lived till 92 years old, got saved the day before he died. The last thing he did while he was still conscious, before he slipped into unconsciousness, was to sing with my wife, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 92 years. But the last 10 years of his life was not living. One medical issue after another determined that he was merely existing. So if 92 years is what we can anticipate, or let's say 80 years of some type of quality of life, 80 years in the span or in the context of eternity is like taking a dropper full of water and placing it in the ocean. It's not matter, it's not going to matter at all. So not only does James tell us we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, but he reminds us of the finite nature of our own personal lives. That life is short. And as believers in Jesus Christ, if we've got saved in the middle of those years granted to us, the new life that we have is even going to be shorter lived. But then he reminds us of something else in verse 15. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. God's will for our life will change our life. I could have never imagined for a moment that this is what the Lord would lead me to do. And now, 25 years later, I'm surprised. I'm shocked. I often wonder, Lord, isn't there somebody better? And I come to the conclusion quickly, yes, oh, yes, there is. But that's the grace of God. The will of God will change your life if we allow the will of God to govern our life. But those who believe that they are sovereign or they are in control of their own lives apart from God as new believers in Jesus Christ... He calls us boastful. He calls us arrogant. That same word is used in John, 1 John 2.16. Of course, it's a famous verse that we are all aware of that states, For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and here's that word, the pride of life. That word pride there and, of course, associated with our life means an arrogance in one's personal possessions, accomplishments, or social positions. These individuals had a degree of wealth that allowed them the ability to choose what they did with their life. One pastor once stated that the reason that the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil is because money subjects the individual or gives the individual the delusion that they have personal sovereignty over their life. 
Their wealth allows them to do what other people cannot do. And often, when wealth is introduced, and it's interesting because the segue into chapter 5, James addresses the rich directly. But it gives us the impression that we can do things apart from God. Again, that we are solely in command of our own lives as Christians. But I tell you this morning that that was not the idea of early Christians, especially the apostles. The disciples saw that their life was not their own any longer. That since their new birth in Jesus Christ, since they had been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, they were now subjected to the Lordship of Christ. We love the idea of the salvation that God provides us. That if we were to die, we would go immediately to heaven. That's a wonderful idea. The problem, though, is that people stop short of the complete understanding of salvation. People stop there and they, they react to their salvation in Jesus Christ as they would an insurance policy that they buy for different uh, what-if scenarios that may occur within their life. Concerning your home insurance, I'm sure you all have home insurance. And you buy that home insurance because you're concerned about the what-if that may happen. And you buy the policy... And then you put it in a filing cabinet somewhere and you don't, you know, go to it unless you're in need of going to it. And unfortunately, many Christians are like that with God. They get saved. They come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but then they walk within their new life as it is simply an insurance policy that if I die, I immediately go to heaven. Though that is true, it is absolutely incomplete. And we must understand how incomplete that idea actually is. Today, more than ever, we see Christians interact with God on that basis. They like the idea of coming to church and singing emotionally charged songs. They like fellowshipping with other like-minded people. But day by day, they don't have that concern or consciousness towards God's lordship over their life. He is our Lord and Savior. And what do I mean by that lordship? Meaning that He is the one governing, leading our lives. And as Christians, we must understand that both are included. We are saved by grace. Certainly we are. But we've been bought and paid for with a price. And Christianity isn't meant to be like that insurance policy that we just draw upon in our time of need. Often I hear Christians who say, well, you know, I ran into some difficult times. I lost my job. My health is failing. And so I reached out to God and I'm nervous. I'm fearful and I'm anxious about what is going to happen next. And they neglected preparing for those eventualities, right? We're all getting older as much and as hard as we try not to, right? I didn't think I was ever going to turn 30, let alone 54. I feel like I'm on borrowed time as it is. 
But now that I am 54, I look at life differently. I govern my life differently. I have to. There are things I can no longer do. Or I shouldn't do because just plain wisdom will dictate that. So as we grow up as Christians, we should be preparing ourselves for those eventualities. Oh, how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves for those trials, troubles, and tribulations that we know James earlier on promises us that we'll all experience? It's by saturating ourselves in the Word of God on a daily basis. Spending time in prayer, cultivating that deep, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. Reading the Word of God, not as we would our horoscope or the fortune cookie method, meaning I'm going to flip to whatever page or chapter I may find, and there God's going to speak to me personally and currently about the situation that I'm in at the moment. God often prepares us beforehand in His Word for those things that are still yet to come. Christianity is not an insurance policy that we're just meant to pull out in our time of need. Christianity is a relationship with God that is meant to be cultivated each and every day. And part of that cultivating, that deep and personal, intimate relationship with God is walking in His will. Let me show you some verses, if I may. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter reminds his recipients... Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of, from your fathers, but, you were, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is what God did on our behalf to redeem us, to reconcile us, to bring us back to Him, to restore us as individuals. We've been bought and paid for, not with material things such as precious gold and silver, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in the knowledge of that, Paul the Apostle made it abundantly clear that he no longer saw his life as his own. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, it should be on the screen behind me. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are whose? God's. God's. Of course, to the Galatian, Paul said it this way. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our lives are not our own. So then what do we do with the new life in which God has given us? He has bought and paid for us through His blood. The sacrifice that He uh, gave on our behalf determines to me the incredible value that His blood uh, was to me. 
The seriousness of my sin required the slaughtering of my Savior. But now that I have received new life in Jesus Christ, what shall I do with that new life that He has given me? I shall live for His glory, knowing that my life is no longer my own, knowing that I now shall live as Christ who lives in me, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And to glorify God, we must walk within His will. For in verse 15, again we read, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, as I stated at the beginning, there is a general will that God has for each and every one of us. That will is outlined for us in His Word. So, for example, if God says to do something in His Word, and that is directed to us, here it is, folks, that's His will for you, right? We should do it. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to question it. We don't have to, you know, say, well, does this really apply to me? If God says for us as believers to do something, we should do it because that's His will, correct? All right. But if He tells us not to do something, that is equally His will, correct? Because again, That's the general will for all believers in Jesus Christ. We are governed, first and foremost, generally by His Word. For example, in Ephesians... Oh, I'll get to that in just a minute. But in Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, stop there. God will for your life is your personal sanctification. What does that mean? Big word, great and scrabble, triple letter score, if you can, can utilize that. Sanctification means God bringing you out of the world, cleansing you of the defilement from the world, and restoring you to the image that he originally designed you to occupy that Adam once had that he therefore relinquished at the fall. Now, none of us will reach that point of perfection, even though I believe some Christians believe that they have. Uh, you know, they look for, at the Christian bookstores, I, I'm, my sanctification day, I'm done. No, we're all works in progress, right? That's why we have to show grace to each and every one of us, because we're all works in progress. God is working in us to bring about the changes that He desires. Sanctification is drawing us out from the darkness into the light. It's drawing us from death to life. It is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's will for our lives. Every believer. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The mere consciousness of God should change our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Again, the general will is also found in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is just a couple of examples. He says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I truly believe that if we would have a thankful heart, 
towards God. We can always find something to thank God for. Even in our lowest points in life, there are always things that we can thank God for. My wife was so moved by the idea of gratefulness, thankfulness, that she started a thankfulness journal. And before she starts any of her devotions, before she starts her day, she takes her journal and she opens it up and every day she writes down things that she is thankful for. It prepares her heart to read what God wants to say to her next through His Word. It helps her with an outlook on life. And she has noticed how God has worked in that. And that she can be more optimistic and hopeful rather than pessimistic and, of course, discouraged. This is the general will that God has for each and every believer, spelled out clearly in His Word sometimes indicated very clearly by, for this is the will of God. I don't know how much clearer God can make it. But anytime he says to do something, we should do it. Anytime he says don't do it, we should abstain from it. Now, Paul the Apostle told us from the very beginning that God had a specific will for each and every one of us. I'm sure that you are all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For Ephesians 2, 8, 9, of course, verses that we have at one time, I'm sure, memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we would all say amen to that. We would all rejoice in that fact. That it isn't me who has merited my salvation, but God has given it to me by His grace, and I accept it through faith. The problem, though, with the memorization of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is that, again, the thought is incomplete. Yes, this is how you have gotten saved. This is how God has saved you. For it is a complete work of God. But in the Greek grammar, indicated by what's called a Greek syntax graph, The idea, the thought, doesn't end in verse 9. The thought is completed in verse 10. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 should be accompanied with verse 10. So if we read it again together, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10 added to it, That's how you were saved, and here's why you are saved. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Just as your salvation was predestined from the foundations before the foundations of the world, so was the will, the plan, the purpose that God has for you as an individual. We are saved for the purpose of fulfilling the good works that Christ has architected for us before the foundation of the world. Those good works consist of the general will that God has for us, outlined for us in His Scripture, but also the specific will that He has for us. Now, when I mention a specific will, I believe it is indicated throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament alike. 
that God uniquely uses certain people for certain functions within the body of Christ, which would make it specific to that individual, wouldn't it? For example, not all of us are hands of the body of Christ, are we? Some are feet. Some are toes. I've always wondered who is the nose. I've been curious about that one. And we know that each member has extreme value to the totality of the body of Christ. But the specific will would include what role we play within the body of Christ. Someone may be an ear, someone may be a thumb, someone may be a foot, etc. Which is unique to you and therefore specific. When it comes to your ministry in the body of Christ... Because of our giftings being unique. Because of the work and experience that we may have. God has uniquely selected us for individual places of ministry, service to Him within the body of Christ. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. Not everyone is called to be a pastor. Not everyone is called to lead worship. All of these are specifically designed by God for the fulfillment of the edification of the body of Christ and the body comes together, works together, not only for the edification of the, of the body, but also for the glorification of God Himself. So there is certainly a specific will for each and every one of us. Now I advocate that there is also specific will for your personal life. I do believe that God will lead you to the job that He has for you. I also believe that God will lead you to the person that you are meant to marry. I cannot thank the Lord enough for allowing me the grace not to marry individuals that I thought I wanted to marry, but allowed me the grace to marry the one that he had for me. And 28 years later, wow, she is spectacular. I, I feel like I'm the most blessed man in the entire world. And this goes back to Isaac and Rebecca. Genesis chapter 24, where God specifically had a wife selected and chosen for Isaac and uniquely presented her to Isaac. And I'll let you read Genesis 24. But if you're willing to wait on the Lord, if you're willing to subject yourself to the authority and the lordship of the Lord, I believe that he will take care of these things as you actively seek him. Now, I know I don't have to say this for this group, but I'm going to say it anyways, because again, we, li- we live in a society of extreme positions, don't we? Now, me saying this, you may say, well, are we just supposed to sit home and do nothing? No, we're supposed to actively keep pursuing where we believe God is leading. We need to allow Him to move us to where He would have us. Chuck Smith said it beautifully and simply this way, that God has a much easier time moving something that's already on the move. And he likened it to snowballs. Now, I know we're in the middle of August and none of us want to think about snow, do we? 
But September will be here next month, and I'm sure we'll have our first snowstorm because we live in Chicago. But if you've ever made a snowman, that bottom, you know, foundational ball itself, that's the key to it all, isn't it? And as you roll that ball across the yard or across the open space and to accumulate more and more snow to make it larger and larger, you better keep that thing moving because once it stops at a certain size, that's where it's going to stay. So keep moving. How do we keep moving until God places us into those ultimate positions? By fulfilling needs that we see within the body of Christ. By continuing to look for open doors of opportunity wherever Christ may lead us to. By being patient and waiting on the Lord. Hardest thing for us to do is being patient. But accompany that patience with contentment. Saying, Lord, you know the desires that I have. And as I seek you, I believe that you've placed those desires within my heart. And when it is your perfect timing, then I know you will fulfill those desires. And one of the certainties that I have uh, come to a conclusion on is this, that my timeline never appears to be God's timeline. I'm always wrong. So it's better to wait on Him. Now, some people have suggested and have questioned this, That is, well, if I'm waiting on God or if I'm being content, isn't that the same as being apathetic or complacent? And I say to them, please understand that waiting on God is just as active as moving for God. And it is not complacency. It is not apathetic. It is simply allowing God to lead and to guide you according to His purpose. Now, I referenced Isaac in just, uh, just a second ago, but let's talk about Abraham for a moment. Because through the life of Abraham, there are three important components to the will of God. Number one, it is first and foremost that he, knowing that he has a will for us. What is that will? Number one. <clears throat> but Abraham demonstrates two other factors that are equally important. That it's not only important to know what God's will is, but number two, it's also important to know how to do the will that he has for you. And number three, it's also important to know when to do it, to when to fulfill the will of God. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with Genesis 15 through 18. If you want to read it real quick, we'll wait. But the story of Abraham, of course, Abraham is given the promise that through his child, the child of promise, God would fulfill all of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so, of course, that child was Isaac. But God gave Abraham and Sarah that promise years before he fulfilled it. And they had to wait on the Lord. The problem is, is that they didn't wait long enough. And they said, you know, God gave us his promise. We're already elderly. We're already in our advanced years that we were going to have a son. And through that, you know, God gave us the promise, but I think we need to help him out a little bit. And so Sarah came. Now, I remember Sarah's first reaction to this promise was to laugh, of course. 
But finally, she came to the point where she was tired of waiting, and she said, look, Abraham, I've got this great idea. Erwin Lutzer once said something, and I I think I laughed out loud when he said it because I agreed with him so much, that every good idea is not a God idea, okay? Every good idea doesn't necessarily make it a God idea. So uh, Sarah had a good idea. Well, look at my handmaiden, Hagar, here. She is uh, able to bear children. And we'll just, you know, have a child uh, through her. She'll be our surrogate, and we'll have a child through her. You know, what could it hurt, right? (laughs) This is our limited perspective in action, isn't it? This is our limited understanding, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. She had what she believed was a good idea, but it certainly was not a God idea. So Abraham subscribed to this philosophy, happy wife, happy life. So he took a night with Hagar, and of course, through that night, Ishmael was born. And then afterwards, Sarah was so happy with Ishmael that she danced around and rejoiced, and she embraced Hagar as part of the family, right? Well, if your Bible says that, please, I hope you save the receipt. Because immediately, Sarah became jealous and envious, and she became upset about what had happened because she now realized that Hagar produced something for Abraham that she was incapable of producing. And then, of course, she went back and had another idea and said, Abraham, send her away. Her and the child, send her away. Happy wife, happy life. He sends her away. God meets them in the wilderness, takes care of them. And then through Ishmael came all of the Islamic nations that we have today. There are consequences for not waiting on the Lord, presumptuously moving ahead. There are consequences and, may I say, complications when we sin against God. How many of the Old Testament individuals complicated their life by sin? Things that God had forbidden. David, after sinning with Bathsheba, it went south quick on him after that, didn't it? His whole family was destroyed. All kinds of problems. Sin complicates lives that God would spare us from if we were just obedient to him. So, of course, then later on, they have the child. They're now well advanced in years, and they have the child that God had promised so many years earlier, the child Isaac. So from that, I concluded that it's not only important to know what God's will is, but to fulfill it how he would have us fulfill it, And also fulfill it when he would have us to fill it. I think of Joseph, who was given the, of course, vision by God that he was going to be exalted over all of his brothers. And, of course, he immediately, as the younger one, went back and told all of his older brothers this great news. And they all rejoiced and sing, you know, kumbaya around the fire, right? They became jealous, the older brothers. They became angry with Joseph. And of course, it spiraled into the journey in which Joseph took that included a pit 
It included the prison, and finally it resolved in the palace. But that was God's will for Joseph. Fulfilled how God would do it, and when God would do it. So God has a specific will for us. Knowing what that will is, is important. But also how we fulfill it, and when we fulfill it. He then concludes by saying in verses 16 and 17, But now you boast, again there's that word of pride that we saw in 1 John 2.16, in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore to him who knows to do good, this is a proverb that was used at that time. Uh, D.A. Carson wrote in his book on this, said it was a commonly known proverb, to him who knows to do Good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So it's evil and it is sinful not to consider the lordship of Christ over us and knowing that under that authority, our primary responsibility is to fulfill the will of God that he has for us. So now comes the question that eventually we get to. How can I know what the will of God is? How can I find it? How can I discover it? Well, often we enter into this discussion with an incorrect premise from the very beginning. The premise is, is that we believe that the will of God is some mystery hidden from us. And like Indiana Jones... Do you guys remember that movie? I've noticed I used movies that came out 40 years ago. I did this with the youth group, and they're all like, huh? What? Oh, it came out in 1981. That was 20 years before I was born. I was like, I am old, you know. They constantly remind me of that every Friday. Um, but we believe that, like Indiana Jones, we have to jump through the hoops that he jumped through, running away from the boulders, jumping over the crevices, the pits, uh, you know, walking through the web of spiders and so forth to discover that archaeological find. And we too must do this and those things to find the will of God. So if that is your perspective this morning, I just want you to stop for a moment. I want you to take a deep breath because I'm about to change your life. God's will is not something you need to go searching for. God's will is something that's already searching for you. How do I know that? Because it was, or, it was architected before the foundations of the earth, right? Meaning before you were even born, before you were even living, God knew exactly what he wanted to do in and through you. God indicated this to Jeremiah while he was still in the womb. God's will is already written out for you and he wants to reveal it to you. But there are two necessities to receive that revelation that I want to indicate to you this morning. And you may pass them off initially as trivial, but let me tell you they are theologically significant. Greg Laurie wrote, he said, understand this. God does not play hide and seek. He wants to reveal himself to you. It might come as a surprise to you that God wants to lead you even more than you want to be led. God is concerned about revealing his will to us today. 
we need to learn how to discern the will of God. And that's what I'm going to try to help you do this morning. Two primary steps. Two. That's it. Two. So it's not going to be a long series, you know, 43 parts on 43 different ways to discover God's will. Two, two, two things, but they're enormous. Okay? It's not the quantity, it's the quality. Number one, we have to adopt the same mind that Jesus Christ has. In fact, Paul writes about this in many of his epistles. Have the same mind that Christ had. Let that be within you. So part of that mindset is the first step. And we find this in Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. This is step number one in discovering the will of God. And again, I say that when I say discovering, meaning that He's already wanting to reveal it to you, but you have to position yourself to receive it. That's the best way I can articulate it. We have to position ourselves to receive it. Notice what he says here. Luke writes, he says, And he withdrew from about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, and here it is, not my will, but your will be done. The first thing we have to do is surrender our will to God. If we are going to be open to receive the will that He has for us, we have to relinquish that control. That sovereignty that the individuals that James addressed believed that they had. That they were their own persons now that they were in Christ Jesus. We need to relinquish our will if we are going to receive and God reveal to us His will. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. As we grow in our knowledge of God, as we grow in our trust of God, in our faith in God, we then come to the point where we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus said, if there was any way for this cup, and of course, he's speaking of the crucifixion. I think we all know that. But he says, if there's any other way, Father, I I pray that that would occur. But, not my will, but your will be done. This is very hard for the American Christian to do today. To relinquish their will to receive God's will. We have reduced Christianity in America to a self-help faith. That God is a mere supplement. He's like one of the vitamins that we find on our shelves or in our, you know, cabinets over our bathroom sinks. And when we feel a little down or we need some direction or we're feeling anxious, we go to God and we pop one of those vitamins, you know. One person even said it to me this way when I was talking with them about the will of God, when I was sharing with them their need to relinquish their will, to receive God's will. They said to me, but I'm confused. I thought God is here to serve us. And I said, well, what gives you that impression? And they quoted, well, Jesus came to serve and not to be served. So he's here to serve me. 
I was like, I was like, you, what? You know, you, you, you just stand there dumbfounded. What? Did you read that in the back of a cereal box? Where did you get that? Paul called himself a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. We need to relinquish our will. The other thing that really negates that or makes that difficult to do is how self-absorbed we are today. Of course, the new, I you know, argue that the new idol in the life of Americans today is not materialism anymore, it's self. That's our new God. And as much as we can give that self-sovereignty through wealth and other things, that's what we seek to do. But American Christians aren't immune to that. Like lots, some of us, the world has spilled over onto us, and we forget that we are no longer our own. We forget that we've been bought and paid for. We forget that God is not only our Savior, but He's our Lord. So we must, first and foremost, relinquish our will to be receptive to God's will. Number one. Number two, Paul articulated, and I think it's fascinating, the placement of these two verses in one of the most theologically rich books of the New Testament, the book of Romans. If you haven't read Romans lately, may I ask you to? Again, we'll wait. Romans is incredible. But after Paul articulates all that God has done on our behalf, he also talks about our proper response. There's a condensed version in the book of Ephesians where the first three chapters is, is Paul laying out for us everything that we have been blessed with in Christ Jesus that are found in heavenly places. God artic- uh, Paul articulates for us everything that God has done on our behalf through the first three chapters of Ephesians. <clears throat> then in chapter 4 verse 1, he says, now walk worthy in light of all that God has done for you. This is our proper response. Paul said it this way in Romans. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, step number 2. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, number one, a living sacrifice. That we are to present ourselves before the Lord as an animal sacrifice was presented before the Lord there on the altar. We are living sacrifices... We've already adopted the mindset, not my will, but yours be done. We now present ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice before Him and say, Lord, consume me, take all of me. Now, there is some qualifications for those who would present themselves in such a way. Number one, holy. That is that we're wholly surrendered unto the Lord. Now, again, this doesn't happen overnight. This is a part of the sanctification, the work in progress. But it means that we're wholly devoted, that we're separated unto God. We are set apart for His purposes and for His plans. Acceptable to God. Meaning that what we know of His general will, we are looking to apply within our lives. What God has articulated to us in the Scriptures we are applying in our daily lives, we're, we're trying to live by them through the power of the Spirit and the new creation that we are in Christ. And then he says, 
Now this is only which is your reasonable service. And what that means in Greek is that this is only the proper response that we can have for all that God has done for us. And so read the first 11 chapters of Romans. Read the first three chapters of Ephesians. This is what God has done on our behalf. The only reasonable response that I have to everything that God has done through His grace is to lay myself a living sacrifice before Him. Holy and acceptable. That's the only way I may respond to all that He has done for me. And then in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. The world is trying to conform you. And in the Greek, it is the outward pressures of the world creating you in its image. Creating you in its image. What it wants you to be. Paul says, don't allow that to occur. Well, how do we resist that? By the inward transformation by the renewing of your mind by the renewing of your mind. The sanctification work that God does within our life begins within us and then spills over on the outside. He changes our heart. That's where it all begins. And then he begins to change us from the inside out and transform us by the what? Renewing of our mind. And how are our minds renewed? They're renewed as we saturate ourselves in the word of God. The Word of God has the ability to wash away the sins of the old. Washing of water by the Word. But it also has the ability to change us. To lead us and to guide us. So we then sow to the Spirit rather than sowing to the flesh. Sowing to the Spirit, making those decisions that would lead us and guide us in the sanctification. Not squelching those things, not grieving the Spirit by resisting His work, but allowing God to have that perfect work within us, eventually leading to eternal life. And of course, again, I don't have to say this, we're not earning our eternal life. That's already been granted to us. But God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us, and He wants to change us from the inside out. Transforming us into something brand new by the changing of our mind. And that, the renewing of our mind, takes place through the Word of God. Daily devotions isn't optional for the believer, it's a necessity. Feeding the Spirit, walking with God in His knowledge. Then he goes on to say that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is how it all starts. We adopt the mindset, not my will, but your will be done. And then we look to lay ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice, preparing ourselves as for that sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Not being conformed into this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, proving what is that perfect will of God. That's what James was hoping his recipients would learn as he wrote to us, that we should seek the will of God.